Blog Talk Radio. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this program are not necessarily the views of Thinking Bigger Business Media, Inc. or its employees. Welcome to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Get the inside scoop on how America's most successful business owners transform their entrepreneurial vision into reality. And listen in as some of the top business minds in the country serve up practical advice, tips, and insights for growing your business. Now here's your host, Kelly Scanlon. Good morning and welcome to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Mary McKenna in for Kelly Scandlin and today we are talking to a business strategy keynote speaker, author and consultant. He's the founder of Outthinker, a former McKinsey and Company consultant and a sought after keynote speaker, recognized expert and popular blogger. And he doesn't sleep, obviously, on the topics of strategy and innovation. And he's helping to grow a long list of leading companies such as Microsoft and Oracle and Johnson & Johnson and Lockheed. The author of four business strategy books most recently, Outthink the Competition. And that is what we will be discussing today. Kyan Kriffendorf joins us on Smart Companies Radio. Hi, Kyan. Hi, Mary. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, and the show is over. I'm done reading all of your accolades, so <laughs> we just have to move on. <laughs> yeah, that was easy. Yeah, it was very easy. Your latest book is Outthink the Competition. And tell us, first off, how you got into, I should say, this line of work, but where you are today as an, a much sought-after keynote speaker. Well, I was working at McKinsey, and um, through that time, I had been writing my first book. When I published my book, I decided to leave the firm, and I didn't know if I was going to write another book. So I thought, you know, I should really take this opportunity to do all I can to promote the book, and that led to speaking and training and consulting all around my methodology. And I've been doing that since 2004. And we're going to delve in, dig a little deeper there on your methodology today. Your latest book, as we've mentioned, Outthink the Competition. What is that book about? Well, you know, my first two books were really about how an individual can come up with a disruptive, innovative growth idea. How can an individual think like um, Steve Jobs or Richard Branson? Uh, And I found that you can get individuals to do that well, but in groups, there are certain dynamics that prevent them, a group of people sitting around a table from really getting attached to and committed to a different idea. And so this book kind of breaks down how to solve that problem and how to get a group to think innovatively. Okay. Why do you think that is that a group, is it because everybody wants to own a piece of it? And so it's, we're not just going to have that cohesive thought process. Yeah, yeah, that's there. There are several, several reasons, several kind of barriers, um, and I kind of simplified them by studying about 300 strategic conversations that we had run, and there are several of them. But I think that you know the overarching one is it's just easier to say no than it is to say yes. And so as soon as you have an idea that's a little different, different disruptive, innovative ideas are always going to be inconsistent with some prevailing logic or belief. And, and that logic or belief steps into the conversation and someone will say, well, you know, that's a good idea, but here are three reasons that won't work. And they offer a compelling, logical reason to kill off the idea. And that almost always does its job. Oh and almost gosh. always kills off the idea. That is so me. I was like, yeah. <laughs> well, let me, let me be the devil's advocate. And let me just say this. And how many of us sit there in meetings and do that? And maybe we just like to hear ourselves talk. Or maybe yes. we just want to consider all the options. So there is that thought process as well. 
In the book, you mentioned this concept of a fourth option. Speaking of options, that is also the topic of a TED Talk that you gave recently. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, I found that to be a really powerful metaphor for this idea of thinking innovatively. So three represents the point at which others stop thinking. That's a great orator as they repeat in threes. At McKinsey, they train you to break everything down into threes and three sets of threes and three sets of threes. Those threes just represents there is a point where we, you, me, our competitors, people just say, we've considered all the options. And, if, and as I studied how great innovators talk about how they think, the one thing they share in common is that they recognize that point and they look beyond it and they look for the fourth option, the option that others haven't considered. And that's yeah. the core uh, the co- core concept behind the methodology. Okay, but that's all well and good, easy to say. Can you give us an example so we can run with that a little better? Yeah, I mean, there are examples everywhere. But I think this, this applies not only in business but also in sports and politics and, and in creative work. Uh, for example, in 1968, Dick Fosbury um, jumped over the high bar backward in the, uh, in the Olympics. Uh, and um, before he jumped over the high bar backward, um, every gold medal winner before him had gone over using one of three techniques, all forward techniques. And this guy, he's a sophomore in college. He um, wins the Olympics. It takes the competition eight years to copy him. Eight years later, 90% of high jumpers are going over backward. So here we see exactly the pattern. People, experts that are smarter than you and I, that are more experienced than you and I, they have arrived at a conclusion that there are three ways to do something. And then someone, I call this person the outthinker, turns their back on that tradition and they do something differently. And in business, you see this uh, as well. If you dissect fast-growing companies, what you'll see is that they introduce multiple fourth options into their business. Um, There's usually a simple explanation for their success. You know, like Walmart. Why is Walmart successful? Because Sam Walton built in in rural areas rather than cities. Um, There's always a simple answer, but the truth is actually much more interesting. Um, Urban Outfitters is one of the one of my favorite examples of this. They've been they consistently grow faster and are more profitable than their peers. They're a retailer, and when I interviewed the CEO and asked him to describe his strategy, he laid out a number of fourth options. For example, um, they only target college students, and a traditional retailer, if they wanted to copy this element of the strategy, they would have to abandon. Say the Gap would have to say, um, we don't care about adults, we don't care about selling kids' clothes. And this is a, a, a four. So, so Urban Outfitters has a fourth option that competitors won't copy. They sell used clothing, um, although most of what they sell is new. They sell some 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 used clothing, and um, that's something that the Gap would resist copying because that's inefficient. Um, they don't hire from business schools. They hire from design schools, and they have artists that work in their ma- in, as managers that can bring in artifacts from outside and put them on display. And you know, if, if you imagine a Gap manager were to show up at the store and, and say, uh, here's something I found on the street that I think would look neat in the men's <laughs> section of the store, right? Um, they would get shown the back door. Um, uh, but Urban Outfitters can do that because they have artists rather than analytical managers running the stores. So you break it down. You peel down fast-growing companies. You see a number of fourth options that uh, work for their core customer but that competitors will resist copying. This fourth option way of thinking, is that something that anybody can do that you can be taught to do or are you just born with that ability to think strategically like that? 
I think it's both. You, some people are born thinking that way. Um, well, let me correct that. I think everyone is born thinking that way, that this is how we thought when we were five years old, when we were playing with Legos. But many of us, and I include myself in that, we've forgotten how to think this way. But it is innate to us. As humans, we are natural creators. And there is a way to formally, consciously readopt this way of thinking. It's something we can relearn. You say most conversations inside companies kill off this way of thinking, kill off the fourth options. And obviously, we've just, yes. as humans, have killed it off ourselves <clears throat> since we were five. But why is that? Why, why is it killed off in a lot of companies? Well, well, I mean, I think that there are in, you know, in my book, I break down there that uh, that uh, the strategic conversations that lead to your growth. And, and by the way, McKinsey conducted a study and said that 74 percent of strategy, strategic decisions are made outside of the formal planning process. So I'm talking about the conversations in hallways around water coolers before the meeting starts. That is where strategy is made. And um, in my book, I lay out that there are five types of conversations that you need to have. And each of those address a barrier. Um, the first barrier is that we don't think about the future. We're worried about today. The second is that we focus on the obvious parts of the problem. We know this is a process problem or we know this is a people problem. The third is that we don't generate enough ideas. We'll, we'll get satisfied when we come up with six or seven or eight ideas. We feel like that's an overwhelming number. But innovative groups that we studied, they come up with 50, 100, 150 ideas. And then the fourth barrier is that we have a tendency to want to kill off this seemingly impossible idea. And the disruptive idea always will initially seem impossible. And there's a great tension that uh, prevents us from spending time with these seemingly impossible ideas. And then the fifth barrier is that after we, if we do get through those four barriers and we come up with a really beautiful different idea, kind of, you know, a, a Steve Jobs kind of idea, an Elon Musk kind of idea, we think that it's going to be too hard to convince other stakeholders, whether that's those are your customers and partners and investors or board members or employees, to convince them to embrace the idea. So th those are the five key barriers. We're speaking today with Dr. Kyan Krippendorf, the founder of Outthinker, former McKinsey and Company consultant and author of his latest book, four business books in total, but his latest is Outthink the Competition, and that's what we're focusing on today. You talk about a, a specific five-step pattern uh, that you want to make sure people are having conversations dealing with. Can you go through those five steps? Yes, exactly. And those five steps address these five barriers. So we call the framework IDEAS. So IDEAS stands for Imagine, Dissect, Expand, Analyze, Sell. I-D-E-A-S, IDEAS. And so our hope is that by um, embracing this framework, and, and we do find this, so we, we've trained several thousands of uh, managers and entrepreneurs in the framework. When you're getting together with your team and you say, we need IDEAS, we, have to want, we want to imagine, dissect, expand, analyze, sell. And so the first step is imagine. Imagine is about not just focusing on the immediate problem, but stepping out into the future and imagining a long distant future that 10 years from now, what will the environment look like? I was in Silicon Valley a couple of weeks ago and I got to present to a group of board members of public Silicon Valley companies. And these are just amazing people who have uh, brought multiple technology companies public. And, 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 and as I was talking to you, you can see this is how they think. They step out 10 years from now. They say, what will this space look like? What will Twitter, the, the, the space that defines Twitter, look like 10 years from now? 
And then they come back to the near term and they say, okay, so what do we need to start doing now in order to move to that future? That's the imagined conversation. And then the dissect conversation is focusing on the uncommon leverage points. So you'll see that uh, innovative groups, they'll do some kind of root cause analysis, right? They'll say, what is our problem? And they'll mm -hmm. say, oh, it is a process problem. But what's different about that them is that they don't now then go redesign the process necessarily. They say, well, what if we left the process as it is? What if we changed our culture and our people so our people weren't following the process? Then we don't need process. So the dissect conversation is about dissecting the problem and focusing at the, on, on the uncommon leverage point. Okay. The expand conversation, that's kind of where the heart of my work is, is um, they introduce, I call them strategic narratives. You can think of them as metaphors, strategic metaphors. And these metaphors generate lots and lots of potential ideas. Then they take those ideas and they go into an analyzed conversation and they analyze the ideas and they do it in a way to avoid the risk of killing off the very different idea. Um, uh, Albert Einstein said, it's not that I'm so smart. It's just that I stay with problems longer than others. Hmm. And so what you want to do in your strategic conversations is take that seemingly impossible problem, that Elon Musk, we're going to go to the Mars, we're going to go to Mars kind of problem. And although it would be very easy to say, just laugh it off, right? They sit with the problem. They say, what makes this problem difficult? And how could we remove the barriers that make it seem difficult? That's the analyzed conversation. And then they have the sell conversation. There's been research that says that successful innovators, the, the key distinction between successful innovators and frustrated innovators is that successful innovators view the political challenge as part of the problem-solving process. So they think creatively about how to manage politics to get people on board. So you want to make sure you have those five conversations. Imagine, dissect, expand, analyze, sell. And if you do that, you have a much greater chance of getting your team to embrace a very different disruptive. And you idea. Say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. And you say also you have a much better chance of growing your business at a much uh, faster pace. Uh, yes. 120% faster, seriously? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. Um, we looked at the companies that we've worked with and applied the methodology into and when they implement the ideas that come out of the process, they on average increase their growth rate by 120%. And I actually don't think it's actually that remarkable. I think it's because it is so easy to kill off different ideas that if you can just manage the conversation a little bit differently, you find that there are these great growth ideas that are in your minds, in your team's minds, that are just out there for you to reach out and grasp. And if you can, if you can create the space for your people to grasp those ideas, they're kind of no-brainers. They, they, they grow your business. 94% um, of people who go through this process report coming out uh, with a potentially market-transforming idea. And, and I'm talking about people who may not know themselves as creative, as innovative. They don't wear necessarily uh, ripped jeans and, and uh, you know, and, and black turtlenecks, right? <laughs> oh, okay. They, they, uh, they, they're just everyday people like you and me, and they can think this way. In this book, you talk about five strategies, and you call them strategic narratives. 
Yes. I know you like the number three, but you like the number five, too. Uh, <laughs> and, and winning companies are using these narratives. Yes. We may not have time to go through all five, but can you list a few? Yeah, sure. Yeah, this is kind of the, the, the strategies that we see winning companies today embracing, the, the, the Apples, Googles, Amazons. What's their playbook? And um, one of them is uh, uh, to step in, to, to, to move early to the next battleground. They're constantly talking about where the next battleground is and how we could move there first. So that's one. That's a very common one. Another one is they talk more about coordinating the uncoordinated. So rather than controlling and owning things, they talk about coordinating things. If you think about many of the innovations that we admire today, like Uber and Airbnb, they're just examples of the fact that you can coordinate things today that before you had difficulty coordinating. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, McDonald's, for example, you know, they have a program where if you drive up to a drive through you might order a Big Mac, large fries, Diet Coke. There's a good chance that the person taking your orders is a stay-at-home mom working at her home computer. She sends the order to your store, and then you turn the corner, and the, and the food's waiting for you. McDonald's has found that by coordinating this uncoordinated workforce, they can reduce costs, improve order accuracy, reduce shrinkage, people giving away food for free. And so you take that next battleground and coordinate the uncoordinated. You combine it with some of the others, which are force a two-front battle, which is basically says that winning companies don't define themselves by their industry. Um, Tony Shea, CEO of Zappos, said, we were growing pretty well as a shoe company, but when we really took off is when we realized we're not a shoe company, we're a customer service company mm-hmm. that happens to sell shoes. There's also the, the fourth one is the, the power of being good, of pursuing a, uh, a purpose that doesn't only benefit your shareholders and investors and owners, but also benefits the community and the environment. Many companies are embracing that power. And then the fifth one I call create something out of nothing, which is they're more comfortable instead of playing with the pieces on the board, adding new things to the board, adding new customers to the board, adding new uh, categories to the board. Air Asia, I was in Malaysia a few weeks ago and I was trying to incorporate a local case. Air Asia was bought by a guy named Tony Fernandez about 10 years ago for 27 cents. And it is now the second largest discount airline in the world mm-hmm. just after Southwest Airlines. And his key insight was, we're not gonna play with the existing customers, we're going to add new customers to the board. We're going to we're going to get um, airline um, um, railroad customers and bus customers to start using airlines instead, and that's how they blew up. So those are the five: move early, coordinate the uncoordinated, force a two-front battle, which is to not define yourself by your industry, create something out of nothing, and be good, as, as I call it. I'd like to drill down a little bit deeper sure. on uh, power of doing good, being good. Yes. Yes. It's, it's more than just a, uh, a need for social responsibility. Exactly. I think that the, yeah, the narrative is shifting. It used to be that corporations had an obligation to be good, and they do. But the next evolution of that is that even if corporations only exist – to maximize shareholder value, it is smart to do good. Because if you're doing good, you have no competition. Everyone wants you to win. It's like playing football. There's no one on the other side of the field. You know, We're seeing new business models emerge. There's a company called Best Doctors, which helps people get second opinions. And um, they'll create stories like a, a woman who was going blind, was diagnosed with brain cancer, and was, and was um, a, made an appointment to have an operation. But her employer is a Best Doctors customer, which means that Best Doctors charges them $1 per employee per year to offer this as an, an, an extra health benefit. And they find a doctor who says, 
wait, don't operate on her yet. Give her these pills first and see what happens. She takes the pills and now she can see. Now that sounds like a social enterprise, right? And they are passionate about saving people from the negative outcomes of misdiagnoses. That's what they live for. But their CEO has no shame in admitting that he makes considerable margins doing that, that they're growing at 30% a year, that they're headed to be a billion dollar company. In fact, there's less shame in that because the more they grow, the more good they're doing. It makes me uh, think about companies such as uh, Warby Parker. Yes. And how they are starting, you know, companies in third world nations, rather than just give out uh, eyeglasses, they're creating businesses. Yes. Yes. That's absolutely right. There's another great company similar to that, which I think could be the next Warby Parker is called um, Bowl and Branch. And they make sheets. And um, what their sheets are, they'll sell $700 sheets for $250 completely online. And the reason they can do that is because they cut out all the middlemen. They, they, find, they have a, a, a group of farmers in India, women who pick cotton, and they directly manufacture these high-quality organic sheets. And so if you go to their website, you'll see a beautiful imagery of, of, of the fact that you are providing – employment and sustainable life for these farmers. But there's also an economic benefit, which is 70% of what you pay for sheets goes to all the middlemen before the sheets get to the shelf at the store that you uh, shop. Mm-hmm. And so they removing all that, they can do both. That's what I mean. This is, that's the main idea that you don't have to choose. You do good and you do well. Sleep good, feel good. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Nice that's sheets. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, they, by the way, uh, in three years have grown to $30 million in revenue. In three years. Just a husband and wife team. Really that's, inspiring. That's amazing. What's the name of the company again? Um, Bowl and Branch. B-O-L-L and Branch. Bowl stands for, that's the name of that 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 cotton you know, bulb that you, that you uh, think of when you think of a, of, a, of a cotton plant. Exactly. The little pod yeah. that the cotton sits in, that's a bowl, yeah. I believe. Yes. yes. Wow. Right. E- educational and inspirational today. Kyan Krippendorf, tell us, uh, you can probably, well, give us all your contact information. I should ask for that. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. So um, my company website is outthinker.com. There's two T's in that. Uh, and my Twitter handle is at Kaihan, at K-A-I-H-A-N. And I'll think the competition, the latest book, more books on the way. Yep. I'm working on a book on entrepreneurship, how to be an entrepreneur from inside a large organization. All right. We appreciate your time here at uh, Smart Companies. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mary. And if you'd like to know more about growing your business, check out our website at ithinkbigger.com. Follow us on Facebook at Thinking Bigger Business and on Twitter at I Think Bigger. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.